Welcome to the 14th episode of Rising Tide Ocean Podcast. I'm here with our new podmate, Vicki Nichols Goldstein of the Inland Ocean Coalition. Hello there. Hello. And today we're talking with Philippe and Ashlyn Cousteau, a couple of multimedia ocean sea stars. They're no longer called starfish. Also journalists, Blue World Explorers, more recently, Parents of a Little Mermaid. So uh, Philippe is a grandson of Jacques Cousteau third generation in the family business of saving our blue marble planet. Uh, I think I first met you uh, and your mom, Jan, 16 or 17 years ago. Yeah. You're launching uh, Earth Echo and came to our first Blue Vision Summit and uh, went on to many other projects, documentaries, books you've been involved in. Ashley, yeah. <laughs> you're a longtime entertainment journalist in print and broadcast, including for CBS and MSNBC. And since uh, you and Philippe got together, you've professionally co-hosted a travel channel show, given a TED Talk from Antarctica. Maybe my favorites, the tour you did a Shark Week documentary called Nuclear Sharks from Bikini Atoll, where the U.S. used to uh, drop nuclear a-bombs, and uh, I always thought that was Godzilla's native habitat, but uh, <laughs> but but let's start with uh, how you two got together, and when was the first time you got in the ocean together? Well, David, I just wanted to say uh, we're thrilled to, to be on this with you and and, um, and Vicky, and you know, it's uh, we do go back a long way, and we've had some good adventures. Um, so, uh, so it's, it's a lot of fun back from our days in DC. Well, we, we kind of like to say that it was one of the very few good things to come out of the BP oil spill, uh, was Philippe and I meeting. Philippe was in Los Angeles giving a talk to a group called artists and athletes that, that literally just brings together artists and athletes with, with leaders from around the world and, and experts to talk about specific, um, things that are impacting our planet. And um, Philippe was the speaker for the BP oil spill. And I had a girlfriend that lived in DC at the time, um, who had lived in DC prior, and she got invited to the event. And I was working at E! News at the time. I'd had a long day talking about Kim Kardashian and Justin Bieber. And she said, you need to come with me to this, this uh, the Gulf oil spill talk. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm already depressed from my day at work. Um, let's see how more depressed I can get. So we went early um, so, so we could, you know, kind of get good seats. And I saw a gentleman also who came in early who walked in. And I said to my friend, Tracy, who is that? And she said, oh, that's the guy giving the talk. And I said, that's the same guy that you sent me, like the picture of on the invite that looked like a total nerd in Mandels. So, okay, let's context here. Context. Um, that photo on the invite was me at, in the Gulf, like slogging through oily water. And so I had like, you know, water sandals on. Uh -huh. What else am I supposed to wear? And, um, and that's the photograph that they used for this invitation. So yes, vandals, but certainly appropriate for the situation. Well, 100%. <laughs> and now I also have really unattractive yes, converted her <laughs> for when we do outdoor adventuring. But that was my first thought. And Philippe and I were introduced and... That was it. And literally yeah. that the rest of that night, we just kept, we're also both giant people. So we kept kind of looking across the room at each other and kept making eye contact. And Philippe gave his speech and my girlfriend and I left and went to a little restaurant around the corner and he reached out and said, where are you? And we said around the corner and Philippe came and met us and Philippe and I ended up sitting at the bar talking about travel and animals and our family until like three o'clock in the morning where they were literally vacuuming around our feet. <laughs> 
and that's it. We've been together ever since. When did you first get in the water together? We, I, Aslan was not a certified diver when we met, and though eager to be a certified diver, an ocean lover and a swimmer, etc. And so I still think one of the best places in the Caribbean to dive and to learn to dive is an island called Bonaire. And so about a year after we started dating. Um, yeah, I think it was even sooner than that. It was our second vacation, I think. Yeah, we went, we went on a trip down to Bonaire and I got Ashland certified down there. So, and then little did she know, I, I tricked her because I took her to Bonaire. It's warm, beautiful, calm water and crystal clear. And, you know, you just wear a bathing suit and you're diving tank and you jump in the water. And I think our next trip was up to Seattle, uh, where it was like 45 degrees in the water. And we're trying to wear, you know, seven mil wetsuits. And then we went and did a TV series for three years, a travel channel where we were diving on shipwrecks in the gnarliest, darkest, worst visibility, roughest water you could find. And that was one of your uh, first documentaries together, chasing orcas in the cold waters of the Pacific Northwest. So uh, were you comfortable uh, doing your first killer whales as they... Yes. And honestly, if it wasn't for the whales after that first dive and that shock of cold water that's, you know, rushes down your back, because I got geared up first because I was still kind of new to scuba diving. Mm -hmm. It was maybe my like, maybe 10th dive. <laughs> so I got geared up first. So I'm sitting there sweating in my eight, nine mil, just, just pouring down sweat while Philippe gets geared up. So when I finally get in the, so I'm completely overheated. So when I finally get in the water, I get that immediate brain freeze. And I just that said, that said to myself, if it wasn't for orcas, I would not be in this water right now. <laughs> um, so it was incredible. Sadly, we didn't see any while we were diving. But I did uh, take a kayak out and a huge male whose dorsal fin was probably about as tall as Philippe. I would say it was about six feet tall. He came straight toward me and dove underneath my little kayak. And it, I think I squealed. I think people in, in like Russia heard me squeal. <laughs> I was so excited. Um, so we were, that was such, it was so great to be up there with, with the J-Pod. They're just such an incredible group of, of orcas up there. That was an, uh, a project we were working on, really exploring what's happening with the orcas up in uh, up there, and you know the the impacts of uh, the decline in salmon fisheries, um, which it. is linked both to overfishing, but also to all the dams that we've built along the rivers that they were that they have historically relied upon uh, throughout the Pacific Northwest, uh, devastating their their natural you know cycle, their natural life cycle. Right. And um, well, and even getting in the water with them and hearing all the noise pollution. Yeah, noise pollution was deafening for us. Toxic pollution, yep. you know, uh, wastewater, etc. So, so what is are facing a lot of problems? So what does a uh, salmon say when it hits its head? Damn. <laughs> what does it say? Damn. <laughs> it's the, <laughs> it's I'm the, totally using that. The, the lighter. These, these are good. Any any more good cheesy um, ocean jokes? Because I am a dad, so as soon as Vivian understands these kinds of things, I need to build up a, a war jokes. chest of my dad jokes. So. Right. So this is this is what I call the lighter side of the apocalypse. Um, <laughs> well, I have a question. Since you've done your documentary on the orcas, have you seen any um, improvements or any declines with the issues that you've been talking about? Well, we were really lucky. So when we went up when we went up to film initially, we were with Ken Balcom and he is just this amazing cetacean researcher up in, um, in the Pacific Northwest and San Juan, San Juan Islands. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, that year they had 
zero births, or I think they had one birth, but but the baby, but the, the baby didn't make it. Um, and you went up a couple, just a couple of years ago, it was last year with Awesome Planet. Yeah. And there has been a little bit of good news for them. I think they had three births that year that made it to a year, um, and I think are are still are yeah. still viable, but. But we went up there specifically looking for Granny. I don't remember if you all know her, but she was the oldest, the oldest killer whale that we think in existence. And we didn't see her, and they didn't see her the next year either. So they had to say that she had passed, but still, she was over a hundred years old. And I had, you know, had this. She was just amazing. Uh, matriarch of her pod and um so that's we went up for granny so i will say the sad thing was is granny granny passed away since since we were up there but the good news is it does seem like the pod at least is holding steady but when you say the pod is holding steady with 80 individuals i mean that's terrifying to yep. say that there's only 80 of them there so well i think some of the good news is that this problem is getting out more into the public yeah. And hopefully, you know, with the whole salmon situation and then also with the aquaculture problems that are happening up there and yep. the dams and some of the deforestation that's happening up in BC, it's at least bringing that information to the public. And hopefully, with more and more activism, we'll be able to really address it and turn some mm -hmm. things around. I will say, I think one of the strangest and saddest things that we learned while we were up there was that when a killer whale, specifically in that area of the world, when it dies, it's actually considered um, biohazard, a biohazard area because they have accumulated so many toxins from runoff um, that they you have to go in with hazmat suits to clean it up. And that was what was just so sad yeah. to me because every time they have a birth, especially their first birth, the mothers you know transfer all of those toxins into the baby, and they thought that was one of the reasons why most of their um, most of the whales weren't making it to a year. Mm. Um, but I, so I, I think Vicki, you're hundred percent right. I think now that people are thinking more about it, Blackfish did an amazing thing to open yeah. the eyes to whales in captivity. And then I think it also then now shifted, shifted people's view to, well, what about the ones in the wild and how can we help them? Right. So Blackfish was a documentary on, on, uh, captive orca at SeaWorld. Um, as we learn more, as, as we do the science and just the observation, we realize that like whales orcas they they really have their own culture they have their own accents their matrilineal societies um but we live in a we live in a celebrity culture so you're sort of well positioned to figure out how do we how do we take that obsession and shift it to the existential threats uh of climate and extinction it's true. And David, I think that's actually why I loved Blackfish so much. This woman wasn't necessarily a, 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 a conservationist. She was just a mom that took her uh, and a filmmaker that took her child to SeaWorld and was like, this just doesn't seem right. So the fact that she was able to take this movie and it penetrated pop culture really made everyone think about whales in captivity as the same way that Blood Diamond did. I don't know if you all remember that with Leonardo DiCaprio, but it was a film all about the diamond trade and how most of our diamonds are literally farmed off the back of, of people and communities. So while we still definitely need very you know, um, direct and, and earnest and serious documentaries, we also need a set of films and documentaries and and, and media mm -hmm. in general that actually has and books. A, a different approach to it. Yeah, that just has a different approach that's more like, instead of doom and gloom, maybe it's a little fun. 
or maybe it's a love story or, you know, but we need to, we need to stop talking to the converted of just the people that already care about these issues. We need to talk about everybody to get more people to care about the issues. As Ashton said, we really believe in the importance of creating content that reaches across a broad spectrum of an audience, be it adults, children, through my work at Earth Echo International, um, you know, we, we just convened our, our global youth summit a few weeks ago. We had 500 youth leaders from 44 countries participate. So this is really a global movement of young people and um, it's a big focus of ours. And so my book, my latest book that comes out uh, next week with HarperCollins is uh, called The Endangered. It's a fiction book for middle grade readers uh, and it's all about a motley crew of endangered species. We have a, an orangutan, a pangolin, a polar bear, and a narwhal, uh, a sassy, uh, uh, fast-talking narwhal, and, um, and two black-footed ferrets. They're rescued. I've, I've never met a slow-talking narwhal. Yeah, exactly. those narwhals, they always have attitude. They are always cheeky. Because they're the special. They're the it's, unicorns yeah. of the sea. The unicorns of exactly. the sea. Um, and so all of these animals are captured, are um, rescued from being uh, in captivity or... The pangolin, uh, Wangari is part of the pet trade. So, uh, or uh, excuse me, the illegal trade for, you know, being harvested for, 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 for scales. And so all of them have these different backstories. They're all rescued. They're brought to a secret facility in the Galapagos to, to, to be nursed back to health. They're given a special serum that unbeknownst to the human scientists, both helps them heal, but also gives them hyper intelligence. And so these animals secretly band together like, a, like an A-team, if, if people remember that old television show, an A-team for the environment. And they all have gadgets and fly planes and travel around the world to thwart like various conspiracies. A, a team for animal team. But yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's yeah. a lot of fun. We've gotten terrific reviews. It's, it's great. It's been a real honor to be able to work with Harper Collins. I mean, you know, it goes all the way back, you know, that publishing house to, to books like Moby Dick. So uh, yeah. it's been a real pleasure to work with them. And, and this is the first in a series of books that we're doing uh, of The Endangers. It comes well, this September is, 29th. This is great. And I've always, I mean, I appreciate you did the intro for a book we did, 50 Ways to Save the Ocean with Jim Toomey, the cartoonist, and a previous podcast interview. Because I've always realized the nice thing about books, which is one of the oldest mediums, is they generate other media. Books take on a life of their own. And so, you know, you you create uh, new media through the old media of actually reading. And, And literacy tends to train people to believe in science and facts. So um, it's great to start reading young young people, right? Like that's the, that's the strategy of this is like, how do we create more content like this for young people? And as Ashton said, it's not just, you know, facts, factual books, but how do we start thinking about fiction and how do we can, you know, we're already talking about how this can turn into an animated series. And so to your point, David, yeah, these, these things can live on and, and, and can be something that can capture young people's imaginations and set them on the right course going forward. And also what's so great about the endangered is, you know, while it is, a made up story. Uh, obviously these animals aren't walking around on their hind paws saving the world. But uh, at the end of the book, once we get the kids excited about these characters, Earth Echo and, and WWF have worked to figure out and, and explain to kids how they can actually help these animals in the wild. So giving kids, okay, you love, um, you love the polar bear. Well, let's talk about polar bears and what they're facing. So it's great that, that not only is it a fun, creative, fast spy book, you can actually help kids realize that they have the potential and the power to help these real animals in the wild. And that's what I think is also really exciting. That's a great point. So WWF is a partner and of course, Earth Echo, my organization. And so we're creating a series of webinars and 
and classroom materials and all sorts of uh, stuff to go along with the book that'll uh, air live over the next several months, um, featuring scientists and and real life uh, animals, etc. In, in these that uh, that'll be talking about the, the real plight that these animals. Well, make. I so, certainly and, hope yeah. that we can get all kids engaged, not just coastal kids, but inland kids. In Absolutely, school. you know, youth aren't just the leaders of tomorrow; they're the leaders of today. And we see that in in social um, uh, cultural movements. Uh, it's always been young people that have driven any of the great social movements in society. We see uh, basic behavior change at home is really driven oftentimes by young people. They're the tastemakers. And so campaigns around smoking cessation, seatbelts started to be successful when they started reaching out to young people to pressure their parents to do that. And so again, you know, uh, I think that the key has been recently folks waking up to the importance. Because I'll tell you, you know, David, when we were starting out at Earth Echo, most of the, the big funders, the big organizations, the environmental space, you start talking about education, they'd roll their eyes and walk away. And, and people, I think, are starting to wake up to the fact that if we're going to create that kind of social and cultural foundation, um, across political spectrums, socioeconomic spectrums, racial spectrums, um, that we need to be reaching out to a diverse set of young people to build that foundation and need to invest in that. And, and it's, it takes time. But as you pointed out, look at the, look at the dividends. I mean, the, 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 the youth movements, the climate marches uh, around the world are, are, are really seeing, uh, uh, I think, a change in perspective on the part of adults and companies and younger politicians. Uh, and that, that's really, really important. When, when we had our March for the Ocean in 2018, the the DC March, but there were other marches in Dublin led by an 11-year-old plastics activist, mm-hmm. a 12 and 16-year-old put together the, the march in Saipan. Um, incredible energy. I wanted to ask more about how the two of you were able to put your heads together and come up with this concept. Was it months of planning or was it like, over a glass of wine or a cup of coffee, you guys just were like, let's do it and here's what we want to do. So I think that's really interesting how you guys kind of formulated this. You know, I have to give credit for the endangered (laughs) to um, our uh, editor uh, at HarperCollins, David Linker. He's such an extraordinary guy. We, over several phone calls with him, we had connected and said, you know, we want to do something together. We didn't quite know what. And so it was really collaborative work with him. And I think it was his idea. He was like, what about like 18 for animals? And I was like, that's an amazing idea. And so we just fleshed it out from there. So uh, I, I really have to give credit to David Linker and then my co-author, Austin Aslan, as well, who um, is, is, a, is a well-known and, and successful children's book author, a middle-aged reader, again, uh, level, and, um, uh, and a scientist as well. And he uh, he worked to really flesh out the, the broader story itself in you know in the book and and so yeah it's, it was a kind of an initial brainstorm between David and us and then you know Austin got involved and we really just kind of went from there but it's about a two year process from the initial conversations to multiple edits and versions and you know and fleshing out the characters I mean we had to write backstories on each of the characters that aren't even necessarily in the books but just to understand the motivation for the characters and how you flesh out this whole world and where we want to go with it and map out future books and so we don't you know end up in any dead ends with plot lines and so it's, it was a lot of fun and i have to say even though it's actually 71% of the planet's surface I'm glad that you at least put in uh, half of your heroes are marine mammals, the polar bear. Yeah, exactly. And, and in the next book, I can't give any characters away, but we uh, are even more of an ocean kind of themed in, in book two. 
story for the ocean characters. And speaking of ocean and dumb cultures, uh, <laughs> Ashlyn, tell us about <laughs> oceans for dummies. Yes. So while Philippe has been busy on the endangered, um, I, again, and speaking of how do I get, how do we get more people to care about the ocean? The, uh, the people Wiley Publishing who produces the Four Dummies series. So coffee for dummies, chiropractic for dummies, engineering for dummies. Uh, they approached me and said, you know, would you be interested in writing a dummies book? And I said, well, I, yeah. Uh, and they said, well, what do you want to write about? And I was like, well, how about the ocean? They were like, okay, because they didn't have anything. I think the closest thing they have is environmental science and composting. That is the closest thing they have. Um, so yeah, um, on Friday, turned in the last chapter. It's going to be, well, right now it's like 450 pages. We got to cut it down a little bit. Um, but yeah, we, we worked. Yeah, what dummy is going to read 450 exactly. pages? Exactly. Like, so thank goodness. Uh, I will say thank goodness for quarantine because there's no other way I could have I could have gotten this out. But it's really interesting because, you know, I am I am not a scientist. I am not a marine biologist. Um, my backup career was engineering, but uh, I studied journalism and I just wanted to make a book that was made that, that made the ocean easy to understand, you know, to explain how our ocean controls our climate and our weather and how the climate and weather are different in a few pages. And I really wanted to focus on people that love the ocean that maybe are like the weekend fishermen who go out with a six pack of beer and, and enjoy the ocean, but not really understand it fully. I wanted to write a book for them. It's all part of what I call the blue beat. You know, the idea that the only part of the ocean not fully exploited is good stories. And yeah. we need more good storytellers okay. like I you guys. I love as, that. Uh, so I take, you know, Blue Frontier, we get this new news feed from Google on the word ocean. And about every six months to a year when Frank Ocean drops a new album, <laughs> There are more news stories about Frank Ocean than the actual ocean. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of stories still need to be told. And you guys are doing it. There was recently a um, a survey I was reading about that that surveyed world leaders. And they placed ocean towards the bottom of their list of priorities. And climate, much more. Right, because who needs to breathe oxygen? Well, exactly. And I'm like, wait, so climate is an issue, but oceans isn't, but the ocean drives our climate. You know, the ocean is a climate is an ocean issue. So there's still that disconnect for people that yeah. they just don't understand. And Vicki, all your work specifically of trying to connect people that don't live on the coast is an even harder job. It's been challenging, um, but a lot of fun. So when are your books coming out? We're excited. So The Endangers comes out September 29th, so yep. just next week. And, um, and Oceans for Dummies is going to come out in January or February of 21, 2021. Yeah, good, at which point we're, we're hoping we'll be able to have a live book party. Uh, with exactly, you. that yes. would be great. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Enough of this virtual stuff. Well, and, and this is a moment. I mean, we're, we're literally facing unprecedented wildfires and hurricanes in a pandemic on the edge of an election that could determine our democracy. Um, You know, it's like Sea Party 2020. If people, turns out if people vote for the ocean and their coast, they're voting for equity and good economy and environment. And you know, when we can link all of those. And security. Food security, survival. Mm -hmm. And planetary health. Yeah. Yeah. Nuclear sharks. Tell us about nuclear sharks. These are the Bikini Atoll where America's atomic post-war weapons testing took place. Nuclear sharks is by far still my one of my, our favorite 
projects that we've done. We traveled to um, the Marshall Islands, to Bikini Atoll, where the United States detonated 23 nuclear bombs during the Cold War, the largest of which was Castle Bravo. Um, it was the first hydrogen bomb that the U.S. built. And when it uh, was detonated, it even surprised the scientists. It was a thousand times more powerful than the bomb that we dropped on Hiroshima. Um, it vaporized pretty much everything uh, in the area. It's so hot that it turned the, the sand of Bikini Atoll into glass. And it killed everything. So when Philippe and I went back 60 years later, we, wouldn't, we didn't know what to expect. Um, since many of the marine life in that area is non-migratory. But when we got in the water on our very first dive, we could not believe our eyes. We were surrounded by 70 gray reef sharks uh, who, after we tagged them, we realized they migrated up to 200 miles a day, mm -hmm. right? They, uh, they're groupers the size of our Siberian husky, and they were giant clams the size of our torsos. And it was... To this day, it's the it's the most healthy reef I have ever seen underwater. Um, I know you love the Red Sea, but I think it's the most healthy ecosystem, I should yeah. say, that I've seen under the water. And to think that just in 60 years, it went from nothing to not only being sustainable, but flourishing. So it's this idea, again, that, that we don't want to just sustain our oceans at their current uh, state. We want to make them better. We want to renew we want and to restore. Renew and so. we yeah. want to protect them so they can do what they naturally exactly. do well. And Vicky, that's a great point because as this, the island is still radioactive, it's a de facto marine protected reserve. So that's why it was able to come back. Um, and that's why we, we support 30 by 30 so much, which is- I love um, 30 know, by 30. Yeah, they're the best, Absolutely. right? Protecting 30% of our ocean by 2030. Because again, we don't have to just tell everybody, don't take anything from the ocean. We just have to highlight these super uh, precious, highly biodiverse areas that are important to our, our, our food web, our marine food web, and just say, give these places a break. Agreed. Because fish don't know borders, so everything else will become healthy. Yeah. But that is why, yes, and this, marine protected reserves are so important. And this is the hopeful message you're sending, which is that there's incredible resiliency in nature, that even if you literally nuke it, it can come back if you do the right thing. If we, we know what the solutions are, we have to commit to them. Well, and that's, that's it. That's the good news, right, David, is that, is, that, is that there is hope because there are solutions. There is a tool. There are tools that exist. We know what they are. We just have to, we just have to do it. But if we give nature a chance, she can do remarkable things. And, and it's, you know, and have that consciousness that you have, that when you get in the water at Bikini Atoll, it's not shark-infested waters, it's shark-enhanced waters. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. They were very excited to see us, too, because I don't think they had seen very many people out there. No, no, they were very curious. <laughs> we have some friends. Right. Mm, that looks interesting and tasty. Yeah. What are those bubbles? <laughs> Hi. <laughs> well, thank you guys so very much. It was a delight spending some time with you and hearing about your updates and a little bit about how you connected and how your ideas came together. So. Thank you so much for being great ocean champions. And we will be following your books and your adventures. So and stay hope, in touch. hopefully sometime soon we'll see you in the water. Absolutely. I love it. Yes. And thank you both for all the work that you do for our oceans. It Indeed. just it's it's so appreciated. Yeah, Vicky, David, such a pleasure. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier with hosts David Helberg and support from Natasha Benjamin, Ellie Curlow, and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. 
Rising Tides Editing Services and additional technical support are provided by Studio Kate May of San Diego, California. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbark. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear It's true, it's the blue frontier Tear, tear, tear Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier